Good morning. Uh, glad you all could be here on this first day of the year. Um, what I want to do is start off with a proverb up on the wall. Uh, this proverb is in a different language, obviously. Somebody in here might be able to recognize this. Can anybody recognize what language this is? Say that again. German. Okay, good, good. Okay. Can anybody translate this for me? Surely there's somebody who knows enough German that might be able to do that. Maybe, maybe not. What, what this is, is it's a proverb, a German proverb that says, too soon old, too late smart. Too soon old and too late smart. It's from the individual who has a fair amount of regret over their life and uh, who may not have been what Tim had brought up before, making enough resolutions or being enough resolute during their life to make some changes that needed to be changed. And so, uh, in other words, I have made so many bad decisions over the course of my years that I am now stuck where I am. Uh, so, this year can be a time of reflection and resolution for each one of us. And because of that, the elders have decided to take the next two weeks, this week and next week, to go over a passage of Scripture that addresses the most essential and foundational priorities of the Christian life. So if you would, please turn to Mark chapter 12. It'll be up on the wall. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34, and it's in the Pew Bible on page 848. If you notice, I've got a bit of a cold, and so I'll be up here, and you'll be safe out there. Uh, and hopefully, if you'll pray, my voice will last for the service, and I won't get any, into any coughing fit. Um, the Gospel of Mark records an interaction between Jesus uh, that Jesus was having with religious leaders in this passage, which led to a scribe's honest question about what, what uh, Jesus believed. A scribe is an official scholar of the Old Testament, a theologian at that time. And so we read, I will read it for you. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most, most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <coughs> and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. As we go into the scripture, would you pray with me? Lord, we ask for your blessing on our minds and on our thoughts. Please bless us, Lord, with eyes that can see, ears that can hear, and a mind that can understand the passage that we're studying. Please bless us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is quoting this from Deuteronomy 6, and in essence, he is saying, listen up, all you descendants of Israel. 
the Almighty God who reveals himself to Israel. He alone is God. There are no others. Your God is the only true God. He revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and all the many other gods that people have invented, or all the many other things that people devote themselves to, they steal devotion from the God who created them. Paul elaborates on the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8, and he writes, We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there, are may, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Now, there are some people who, out of some sense of of decency and fairness and in an effort to get along with others, will say that there must be many paths to God. Jesus emphatically disagrees. Jesus says it is the hard truth that sets us free. Believing in a false understanding of God, no matter how nice or accommodating to others, does not please God. And it only confuses those people. Are you convinced of the one true God? Jesus will tell you that it is of ultimate importance that you settle this in your mind. With that being said, Jesus continues in our passage. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God. Now please notice that this is a command. You shall love the Lord your God. how can you command someone to love anyone else? It's a command. This is something somewhat foreign to our culture. Today, people say they love a lot of things. Uh, You hear people say that they love their family, they love their friends, they love their pets, and that those are things that they're endeared to. But it is also used to describe pleasure. People say they love chocolate. They love Christmas, they love movies, they love cars, they love clothes. On top of that, our culture talks about falling in love, like it was some kind of irresistible urge. Or a person might be hunting for that one true love who will complete them and end all of their loneliness. And whoever is my true love, well, they will need to love all the things that I love And they'll also need to make me feel loved. It's a whole different meaning in our culture. You see, the many ways our culture uses the word love and the many ways the Bible uses the word love are often very different. So let's consider just the idea of being loved. Why does everyone you know inwardly want to be found desirable, want to be ultimately loved and cherished by others? Think about it. Why do you try to avoid loneliness? Or that you fear rejection 
Why do you want to be accepted? Why is it that you long for love? Why is this so important to pretty much every human being that you know, including yourself? Why are we drawn to the feelings of love that we get from others? And unfortunately, chasing those feelings from everyone and everything is why we can look for love in all the wrong places. I want you to consider this, that when God created us and he designed us, he instilled in humans a longing to be loved, a hunger to be loved. You know you need to eat something because you feel hungry. You long for love. He shaped us with an emptiness that was meant to be filled with love. That's why. But the only thing that can truly fill that empty longing is God's love. He purposely designed it that way so that we would be restless inside till we found ourselves in love with him, not everything else. Our problem is not an over-desire to be loved as human beings. Our problem is we have misunderstood and distorted where love comes from and what love is. My chocolate will not love me back. And my dearest friend will not die for me to gain forgiveness or make me a new creation with the hope of eternal life. How does God help us understand love to some extent? Well, not all of you have had this. A good parent's love was meant to give you a glimpse of God's love. Think of it in this way. A good parent loves a baby from its beginning, not because the baby loves them. The self-sacrificing parent decides to love and do the things that would make the child flourish in spite of the dirty diapers, in spite of the tantrums. Why? Because they have made a decision to love, they are selflessly committed. Of course, God's love and commitment is far beyond human capability. In Romans 5, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So far above human ability. When we decide to embrace God's forgiveness through Christ, the love of God starts to fill in that God-shaped emptiness. And how might we show love back to him? In, in John 14, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you see how God has tied loving him to knowing and keeping his word? God gives us a noble challenge to keep his word, all the while knowing that we are going to fail more often than we succeed, which is where Christ's forgiveness and steadfast love and mercy comes in. To the extent that we seek to know and serve God, 
our gratitude and our love for God will grow. When we try to do the hard work of keeping his word in spite of adversity and trials, he's pleased. And as we find success in faithfully doing his will, we notice our purpose in him is being fulfilled. And we can start to feel God's approval. We can start to sense his smile, and that brings us joy. That starts to fill the emptiness in us. So point number one, you shall love the Lord your God. A deeper love for God starts with a decision to know him and keep his word. Point number two, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. What does that mean? Well, when a young man says to a young woman, I love you with all my heart, is he talking about a muscle that pumps blood? When people say, you're breaking my heart, or I had a change of heart, or let's get to the heart of the matter, aren't they just using the heart as a symbol of the most important things that drive you, the most important things that motivate you, your passions, desires, goals, and dreams? Scripture speaks about the heart in a similar way, but it points out that our heart's desires can be good or evil. They can be godly or selfish. Our heart can be deceitful and desperately sick to the point where it is twisted, perverted, and an abomination to the Lord. Or our heart can be humbled and a place that stores God's word so that we won't sin but pursue his will. A heart that he can delight in. What we treasure is what we are ultimately devoted to. Jesus says in Luke, the good person out of the treasure, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. If I am my own treasure, and I live for my selfish desires and my own imagination, I will justify most everything I do. I will become the judge of all that is right and wrong in my own eyes. And the Bible shows that evil and foolishness will then accumulate in my heart. And in Ephesians 4, it describes a person who lives that way. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, (coughs) alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They are too late smart. You may say you are describing a person that is only interested in their own pleasure, but I try to do good. I am devoted to things outside of myself, and I think Jesus might say that is a good start. But you may easily turn good things into ultimate things and make them idols of your heart. For example, work can be good. God intends us to do work on this earth. But if you make what your work is the most important thing of your life, you will become addicted to its accomplishment. It will make you a workaholic. 
And this will distract you from all the other things that God wants you to do. If your family devotion becomes an ultimate thing, and families are good, you can fixate on the family, you can fixate even on the family that you never had, and you will be tempted to place family before God. How so? We might want the success of our kids more than we want the success of God's kingdom. And so our time goes into pleasing our kids, and God gets the crumbs. That wouldn't be good. What we treasure is what we ultimately are devoted to. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 10 when he speaks about the need to love God more than you love your father, more than you love your mother, more than you love your brother or sister, more than you love your children. So because of our own selfish need, we need to cry out like David in Psalm 51 where he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We need to pray like, like David. And God's answer was prophesied in Ezekiel where God says, I will give you a new heart and, I, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It begins with believing. And in Romans it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This new spiritual heart starts to beat when we believe in Jesus and find forgiveness through him. And it grows in strength as we exchange all of our hopes, desires, and affections for all of God's hopes, desires, and affections. In some ways, our heart is like a garden. It needs weeded to eliminate the old self-focused desires. It needs watered by our seeking time with God. It needs the light of Scripture shining on it, and God will make it grow and blossom if we cooperate. We were designed by God's love to fill, we were designed for God's love to fill our emptiness and make us whole. And that only works when we make God's heart our heart. We are all called to love God with all our heart. And now Matt will speak on loving God with our soul our mind, and our strength. On, <clears throat> on March 14th, 1911, Captain William Knight uh, sailed the SS Yangala on our 99th voyage in Australian waters. A harbor inspection found the Yangala to be in excellent trim. She sailed from Mackay, or Mackay, I can't remember how you say that word, but uh, she was due on the morning of the 23rd of March, and then from there she sailed to Townsville, carrying 49 passengers and 73 crew. That's 122 living souls, along with 617 tons of cargo in the lower hold. Five hours later, the lighthouse keeper at Dent Island saw Yangala sail into the Whitsunday Passage, the last known sighting of the ship. Shortly before the vessel left sight of land, um, 
A telegram was received by the signal station warning of a tropical cyclone between Townsville and Mackay. The Angala sank during the cyclone on 24th of March, 1911. All 122 souls died in the tragedy. I meant to check with Micah. Micah, do they still use the term living souls when you're radioing in something? Not, he hasn't had, it'd probably be good if you didn't need to know that right now, wouldn't it? It's not something you want to use every day. Um, <clears throat> Bill, Bill already covered this. I want to read our scripture again. Mark 12, 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're covering a lot of ground in the, this week and next week in a short period of time. And this section of scripture could probably be preached on for weeks to get it in full depth, and we're only scratching the surface. Um, hopefully you'll walk out of here with a little bit deeper understanding than you came when you walked in. So now we're moving on to soul. What does it mean to say, I love the Lord, love the Lord your God with all your soul? And to, to do that, we need to understand what Jesus meant when he used the word soul. What's Jesus' definition of the word soul? This sermon's been a bit of a struggle for me because I am not a wordsmith. Word study is not in my wheelhouse. Um, and so I've been pounding my head pretty hard lately. I found these nifty graphs, which are going to show every usage uh, of every word in the Bible, and it gives the various usages in Greek and Hebrew. And you may be saying to yourself at this point, that doesn't sound very nifty. Um, be, number one, because I said it was in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, two, because my graphs are almost all one color. And uh, three, because the words are going to be too small to read. I want to know that I hear those concerns. I acknowledge them as valid. I'm going to use the graphs anyway. Um, so this first graph, nearly solid. Um, this is in Hebrew, and it shows that there's really not much confusion of what Jesus was saying when he references soul. So in Hebrew, um, the hearers knew exactly what he was saying. The word soul is almost completely defined as throat, neck, breath, living being, people, personality, life, soul, dead soul. In Greek, however, it's much clearer. Its entire meaning is soul and life. There's no ambiguity here. Our body can't live without its soul. It's simply a, a mass of rotting flesh. Genesis 2.7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. When the ship's captain radioed in distress and said he had 150 living souls on board, they're referencing the existence of human life. The SS Yangala lost 122 souls that day. The Holman Treasury of the, of the Keywords of the Bible says, if we properly understand the profound meaning encapsulated in the word soul, the greatest of all commandments carries far deeper significance than a surface reading would allow. We are not merely called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our might, but also with our soul. We should love the Lord our God with every fiber of our being, with everything that makes us human. So to put it in plain English, not Greek or Hebrew, we do not have a soul, we are a soul. It's our existence. Now, soul is a pretty clear-cut word in the Bible, in the, in the older languages. It has an almost singular meaning. The next word, mind, has a few more meanings, but still pretty clear. So in Hebrew, there's really no distinctive concept of mind. They didn't have like a, they didn't have like a word that just encompasses mind like we do. Uh, so translators use their own words to fill in the graph. So in our handy Hebrew graph, our HHG, 
Um, 39 of the 62 languages or uh, uses define the word as heart, breast, conscious, inner self, inclination, disposition, or will. In the Greek, the mind plays an understanding, um, the word mind plays an important role in the understanding of mankind. 30 of the 72 mentions define the word mind simply as mind or disposition. 10 mean thinking or thought. So the Greek used it about the same as we use it, kind of the center of our, um, the, the center of our thought. Um, <clears throat> in the dictionary uh, Bible themes, they say the fallen human mind is in conflict with the mind of God. It is nevertheless capable of knowing God, of being changed by God, and renewed by him. They also describe the mind as the, the seat of reason and decision-making. So we are a soul. We don't have a soul. We are a soul. And our mind, our reasoning and understanding is renewed and changed by God. What's the Bible tell us about strength? This one was very interesting. Uh, in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, uh, this word is used 150 times. And it seems to be, in my mind, to be divided into two camps. Uh, I'm just going to run out a few short verses to illustrate those camps. So one usage seems to describe the strength of man. First uh, Samuel 30, David and the people had no more strength to weep. Psalm 30:10, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. Isaiah 37:3 talks about pregnant women ready to give birth, but they lack the strength to bring forth the child. And Daniel 10, how can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. And then the other camp, the, the other majority of those words are used uh, in the strength of the Lord. Ezekiel 5.12, the Lord is my strength and my song. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Psalm 81.1, sing aloud to, the God, to God our strength. Isaiah 49, and God has become my strength. Jeremiah 16, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold. So that same Hebrew word in Greek is only used 15 times in the New Testament, 150 times in the Old Testament, only 15 times in the New Testament, and three of those are in a duplicate passage in the Gospels. So really 12 of those usages are kind of unique to the New Testament. And here's a couple of verses that will help us understand that. 1 Peter 4.11 if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So our job this morning as preachers up here is to bring a deeper understanding of God's, God's word to this room and hopefully encourage some application. Um, we've gone through a lot of words and a lot of definitions, but I want to go back to our original verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. Forever, up until studying this passage, I translated this as me doing something. It says, love the Lord your God. I, I've, got to, I've got to somehow uh, knuckle down and, and love the Lord with all these things. But I don't think that would do these verses justice. And after studying the words a little deeper, I don't think that's what it means. Um, Ezekiel tells us that God gave us a new heart and put a new spirit in us. So to love the Lord our God, we need a heart changed by God, number one. To love our God with all our soul, 
means we need a soul that's been breathed to life by God himself. To love the Lord our God with all our mind, we need a mind renewed by God. To love our Lord God with all our strength means we don't really have enough strength to do that. We need God's strength to do that. So that leads us to a few conclusions. Um, To love the Lord our God at all, in any way, shape, or form, we need to acknowledge him as ruler of our life. If you... Uh, you have to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Reagan testified to her saving relationship with Christ this morning. As a result of that relationship with Christ, God gives us a new heart, his spirit. He gives us, uh, his God-breathed soul, a renewed mind, strength. We can't do this on our own. Um, How many times in the Bible do we hear of things that seem to be People are asked to do things that seem a bit out there that just don't make any human sense. I mean, in, my, in my mind, it's quite a bit. I listed a few examples here. Um, Jesus you know, said, uh, go to that river and you'll be healed. Bathe in that river and you'll be healed. Or in the Old Testament, march around these walls, toot on a trumpet, and, I, and that, that's, that's your instruction. Or... Uh, with Gideon, leave the majority of your men in camp, and I'd like you to go fight a force that's hugely superior to yours, but I only want you to take about 300 guys, and only the ones that drank out of the, you know, a certain way out of the river. Or, you know, to Moses, I want you to start walking into the Red Sea. Lead all these people towards a dead end, and I just want you to keep walking. All right. Or tap your staff on that rock. We need some water, but go hit that rock with your stick. Uh, How about build a big giant boat in the desert for years? Uh, Let's let's have this kid, I vote that this kid go fight this giant, and that will determine the future of our nation. That was was one of my favorites as well. Uh, we got to feed 5,000 people. Uh, Bring that kid over here that's got a fish. 5,000. Let me spit in this mud, rub it around a little bit, and put it in your eye. And then go wash in a specific pool. So those are things that, that, were asked, that, that people in the Bible historically were asked to do that God provided. I'm going to add one to that list. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We can't do it. We can't do it on our own. Only God can provide that. Um, in all those things I listed, God accomplished the work. Gideon, Moses, Noah the person who gave up their fish. Um, God provided, they simply obeyed. The ability to love God the way he wants to be loved is only attainable because of him. We need a heart changed by God, a soul breathed to life by God, a mind renewed by God, and God's strength. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, As we start a new year, Lord, I just pray that you would um, change our hearts every day. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to um, devote every fiber of our being, our existence, our soul to you, Lord. I pray that you would renew our mind every minute of every day. Lord, I pray you give us strength each and every day, all that, so we can love you with everything. Lord, remind us of our constant need for you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity 
to worship here this morning. And I just uh, pray that you keep us safe throughout the day today. And just uh, bless us as we go, Lord. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.